The Academy of Achievement lost two of its most beloved members in the past few weeks. But more significantly, America lost two of its most revered voices, Toni Morrison and Hal Prince. As it happens, in 2007 at the International Achievement Summit in Washington, D.C., Toni Morrison presented Hal Prince with the organization's highest honor, the Golden Plate Award. Earlier that same afternoon, these two giants, one a novelist and Nobel Prize winner, one a Broadway producer, director, and 21-time Tony Award winner, stood at the podium and talked about their lives to the student delegates and the dignitaries sitting mesmerized before them. So on today's episode, we're taking a little bit of a different approach by letting you listen to the talks they gave unedited that stunning day in 2007. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance, not to mention inspiration from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Academy, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. When Toni Morrison died several weeks ago on August 5th, 2019, generations of readers and writers stopped in their tracks to take in the difficult news. She was 88, so it could not be called a premature death. But her work over the past five decades had such power that it was hard to believe she would no longer stand as a truth-teller among us. Before we get to her speech to the Academy of Achievement in 2007, a little more about her. Toni Morrison was the author of 11 novels, including The Bluest Eye, Song of Solomon, and of course, Beloved. She took African-American women's stories, which had been silenced and marginalized, and put them front and center where they could no longer be denied. And she did it in poetic prose that mingled magic with the unbearable weight of racism and sexism. Here's a tiny excerpt from Beloved, her most famous novel. The story is based on a real-life captured runaway slave who decided to murder her child rather than have her return to slavery. In Toni Morrison's telling, the child lives on as a ghost who haunts the home where her mother and grandmother live. We could move, she suggested once to her mother-in-law. What'd be the point? Asked Baby Sucks. Not a house in the country ain't packed to its rafters with some dead Negro's grief. We lucky this ghost is a baby. My husband's spirit was to come back in here, or yours... Don't talk to me. You lucky. You got three left, three pulling at your skirts, and just one raising hell from the other side. Be thankful, why don't you? I had eight, 
every one of them gone away from me, foretaken, forechased, and all I expect worrying somebody's house into evil. Toni Morrison won the Pulitzer for Beloved, and she went on to win the Nobel Prize in Literature and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. One of the many tributes that poured in after she died came from Michelle Obama, who wrote, For me and for so many others, Toni Morrison was that first crack in the levee, the one who freed the truth about black lives, sending it rushing out into the world. She showed us the beauty in being our full selves, the necessity of embracing our complications and contradictions. And she didn't just give us permission to share our stories. She underlined our responsibility to do so. She showed how incomplete the world's narrative was without ours in it. I had no reason and no encouragement to be a writer. I didn't think about it until I was over 30. And I only thought about it then because there was something I wanted to read about and I couldn't find it. I thought everything I needed to read or wanted to read had probably been written by somebody somewhere. And at some point I discovered there was a silence, uh, absence, a vacancy about somebody I knew intimately, which was a young black female. Now there were books in which such a character appeared, but she was always a joke, uh, an instrument of somebody's pity or to add comic relief. Other characters could work out their own generosity on her. But what I thought at that time, if she were center stage and held all the attention and the whole text was about her, two things occurred to me that it would be about her vulnerability and her absence and her inability to speak for herself. And that I, as a writer, would speak for her with other characters or by some skill I imagined at that time that I had. When the book was published, it received the kind of uh, tension that I thought it would which is about 200 people bought it. Although I have to say I was thinking 400, but the company that published it was even more optimistic. They printed 1,500. And then they decided to go out of print. Um, although they did get a paperback license. And um, then an extraordinary thing happened. Um, some universities, public universities in New York and elsewhere, had begun at that time to offer courses in women's studies. 
and they were changing the curricula in a lot of places and reorganizing what was required reading. And some group in New York City uh, decided that The Bluest Eye, which is the name of that book, would be required reading for everybody who went to the City College of New York forever. <laughs> so the paperback company, you know, sort of got it together and it became uh, uh, well distributed and well read and is, as you may know, it's still in print. The interesting thing is, um, once I, I took about six years to write that book because I enjoyed the process of invention so much and of translating some geographical places to disguising them a little bit, using them, selecting sentences, metaphor, all of the work that goes into fiction. That was such a delight for me. But I had done the real thing the important thing. I had been working since I'm 12 years old so that I did have a full-time job. And by that time, I had children, small children. So I had to write at odd hours in the nighttime when the children were asleep would get up very, very early before they said, Mama. But that filled my imaginative life and my inner life so much that I felt able and competent and smart in the other areas of my life because I had this secret thing that I was doing for me, meaning I was the ideal reader. I was the one whom I wanted to please. Um, selfish, narcissistic, all of that, but that is part of, I think, the drive. Now, it sounds disciplined, and maybe there was some because external things, you know, if you have a job, you are disciplined because you have to go. But what happens if you don't? The point is I had the thing that I had never developed well in terms of, um, I mean, I was an excellent worker, a very dedicated worker, but in other ways, I was not a disciplined person. I operated on something that works for me which is compulsion, desperation, and hunger. And they are good substitutes if you don't have habits of discipline, I mean daily habits of discipline, not intellectual discipline, but just habits. So, having completed that book, I was absolutely the most depressed, melancholy, sad and despairing almost person. The world was so unbelievably bleak and no reason that hadn't existed before. I mean, it was the same old nonsense that one encounters in 20th century life um, politically or financially or professionally. It wasn't any different. It had always been worse, but that sadness was stunning to me. And then I was sitting on a subway going to work in Manhattan and I got a tiny sliver of an idea 
about a book. And the world broke open, the sky was blue, people were wonderful or not, but who cared? <laughs> Everything was working because now I am uh, engaged imaginatively and I can do the extraordinary thing, which is to create something out of nothing, whole cloth. So that's when I began to write a second book, which was, is called uh, Sula. So now I know, I think I know, what makes me, uh, what drives me, what's the use of a compulsion, how to figure out where I need to be and what I need to know to make it better the next time. Uh, what I need to know in order to not repeat myself. You know, I never wanted to be that author that gets to that place, that high place, where they're recognized, um, their talent is overwhelming, and they're loved, and so they stay right there with what works. And I still felt that I wanted to be new each time and to set the bar in language and imagination higher for myself each time so that each book was a different world for me. I am not interested really in my life. I mean, I'm sort of interested in it because it's mine, but I mean, as a um, um, source for narrative, it's not interesting to me. Just as other people's lives are not terribly interesting to me, other people's real lives. Because there's no place for me to invent or create. If I look at another person, no matter how fascinating they are, I think, well, that's done. They've already written that story. And they are the consequences of it. When I got to a book that uh, was, I guess, one of the fifth book I wrote, maybe, not sure. Um, I had another idea about the relationship between um, mothers and children. I had been aware of the pressure, this is in the early 80s, the pressure, the debate, the constant arguments, still going on, by the way, about the legitimacy of abortion, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, et cetera, except I don't think that was the language then. But very much, this is, you know, around Roe versus Wade, the notion that women felt, or some women felt, that their freedom to own their bodies was not to be challenged, and that they could choose whether or not to have a child. That they implied that the necessity of having them was a kind of imprisonment, a requirement that they had no control over, and led them into 
terrible decisions. Those women equated maternity uh, with destiny and they wanted to change it. And they felt that the choice to change it was a huge measure of liberation. When I was thinking about that, uh, not having or being required to have children as a sign of freedom, and I thought about the reverse, which was in a particular situation when having children was a sign of freedom. And that would only be most theatricalized in a story about a slave mother who legally had no responsibility over her children. They could be taken from her at birth or any time. They were not hers. Although she was required and certainly encouraged to reproduce, because if you reproduce, you make another slave, she was forbidden to control those children. So standing up for ownership or control or having responsibility for one's own child was for her not just illegal, it was outrageous statement of liberation. So that became the idea for the book called Beloved. And my reluctance to enter into that sort of period, whatever period it might be of all those, what, 300 years, was overcome by the compulsion to develop this idea and I used a historical figure that I didn't do any really research on, just figured out from newspaper clippings who she was and what the response was, because I wanted to invent her life for her, her interior life. So I did not try to make it historically accurate, except in the most obvious ways. But when it was useful for the narrative, I made extraordinary changes. That way, I could use a historical figure and at the same time exploit not only her life, what little I knew of it then, but also exploit my own adventure, my own creation, my own compulsion to tell this story of a hundred and some years ago that I thought at the time had enormous pertinence on the contemporary world. That's Toni Morrison speaking in 2007 at the Academy of Achievements International Summit in Washington, D.C. And as promised at the beginning of this episode, we turn now to another towering figure in American culture who we lost this summer, Hal Prince. He was born in 1928. Hal was short for Harold, but he earned a more clever nickname later in life, the Prince of Broadway. There is much you could say to introduce Hal Prince, but the best shorthand really is to read off a list of the Broadway shows he produced or directed, or both. This is a partial list, mind you. 
Here goes in order, starting in 1955. The Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, West Side Story, New Girl in Town. A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Fiddler on the Roof, Cabaret, Zorba, Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Candide, The Visit, Pacific Overtures, Side by Side by Sondheim, Sweeney Todd, Evita, Kiss of the Spider Woman, The Phantom of the Opera, Showboat, The Revival, Parade, The Revival, and Love Music. The list seems so implausible, I triple checked to make sure it was true. It is. So without further ado, Hal Prince, who came on to speak right after Toni Morrison in 2007. Thank you. Thank you. It, it, following Toni is, uh, uh, I almost ran for cover. We're old friends and she's so, uh, I'm in awe of her. I, I wanted to start with something, hopefully, that maybe no one else has addressed. And if they have, don't tell me. And, and that is luck. How much does luck factor in your achieving the life you want? Uh, I think enormously, and I think it has to be acknowledged by those of us who've been lucky enough to have the lives we have. But you have to redefine luck very carefully, because luck can be that you knew what you wanted to do when you were eight years old, and I'm one of those people. Somebody took me to a theater, I saw Orson Welles in a modern dress, Julius Caesar with the Mercury Theater. Why your parents take an eight-year-old to that, I'm not sure, <laughs> but I will always be grateful. That's luck. So luck is knowing what you want to do with what it is you have. Bad luck is luck, really luck. Uh, and that no one ever puts into the definition of luck. But I was a very solitary kid. I was a privileged kid from an upper middle class family. As you know, they took me to inappropriate plays at eight and, con and, and continued. They took me to see The Life of Oscar Wilde at nine uh, uh, with Robert Morley. Figure that. Uh, but in addition, I, I was very solitary. Knowing what I wanted to do very early on, I had a stage and I would listen to the uh, Met Opera on Saturday afternoons and Milton Cross would tell the story of the opera and then he would say the great gold curtain is rising on and I would have heard the story of the first act and then I would have set the stage and then I would start to move my people around uh, in accordance with the story he told. But of course I didn't speak the language they were singing. So more often than not, uh, I was finished with the first act and they were still singing. Or the great curtain fell and I was about a third through the story that he had told. But I, you know, so the fixation was, was part of it. But also part of it was psychological. I was a loner by choice, I think. I perhaps have dramatized that a little. Certainly my, my wife and my mother who's no longer here, would say, I think he's making much more out of that than he should have. But um, I, the truth is, I did. I enjoyed the company of fantasies and fantasy people far more than real people. 
I enjoyed my life in the theater as I constructed it from the age of about 12 on, and all the people I knew who I didn't know, but who 20 years later, I, or 10 years later, I actually got to know and work with. And at one point, and, and this, uh, this I said on a 60-minute interview some years ago, and, 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 uh, and so, you know, I put it out there. I, I had a nervous breakdown when I was um, about 14, and it was over a very torpid summer uh, uh, in New York, blisteringly hot, and uh, there was no air conditioning, and uh, I just was kind of silent and uh, hard to reach, and I went to my parents and said, I think I need some help, and they said, it's called puberty, get over it. And uh, that's that kind of family, you know what I mean? They had no place for that sort of thing. So I got over it. And, I, and, and what I'm really getting at here is, and when I came out of the other end of it, which was from four to five months later, I was a different human being. I was much more focused than I had been before. And, and uh, really um, ambitious, and I had a plan. And all of that came out of that end of things. And then I found myself in college two years later at 16, and I, there was a master plan going on, and I was aware of it. So I have to think there was luck in that. Then there's one more thing I want to say, and that is I got a job, luckily, because I wrote a letter. I, I didn't know how you interview for jobs. So instead, I wrote a letter to this man named George Abbott, who's a big, uh, uh, the, the biggest producer, director, writer in the Broadway theater. And in the letter, I said, look, I just got out of college, and I, don't, I can't for the life of me figure out what I would do, could do, that would earn a penny. So uh, give me a job. Let me work for nothing. And here's the hook. And if you can figure out after six months that you're, not, that you're not paying me by the nature of the work I'm doing, I beg you to fire me. Well, that's a pretty crazy letter. And he hired me at no salary. He'd never seen a letter like it before. And I've told this story since, and I now get the letter about twice a year from <laughs> somewhere or other. Uh, at Early on in his office, and this is the other piece of luck, the Korean War started, and I was the first person drafted uh, from Manhattan into that war because I'd missed World War II. And that's the biggest piece of luck. And so you see how you have to redefine luck. That's luck because I was a very, as I said, ambitious fellow, and I think I dislocated the air around me. I think the energy made people extremely nervous. And, uh, and suddenly I got drafted, and I had to go away for two years to Fort Bliss, Texas, to Camp Atterbury, uh, Indiana. And basically, uh, I wasn't getting my own way, and my course had been stopped, and I wasn't a bit sure I'd get back on course. And when I came back, I was a different person again, yet again, because I knew it isn't all in your power. 
So I wanted, I just, I wanted to touch on, on, on the whole area of luck, and I wanted to tell you in closing how I personally dealt with the fact that I knew how abrasive my too much energy, too much focus, too much ambition was, that I had a desk pad, a, a, a diary on, on my desk in, in Abbott's office, and at the top of every page for about five years, I wrote the two words, watch it, and an exclamation point. And when I'd come in in the morning, I'd look at the pad, and it was my reminder to behave myself. There are other people around. Calm down and, 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 and don't be abrasive. And uh, it worked. I'm here. And, uh, and I, thought, I thought, you know, you gotta, I, 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 what do I want to say uh, to all these people that maybe they haven't heard? And that is honor the whole idea of luck. Luck is a factor in your life. Only widen your definition of what luck is. And I just want to read you a little something which is separate and apart, but I'm obsessed with it. I gave the graduation speech at Gettysburg a couple of weeks ago, and this is just a small paragraph from it. Uh, it says, I've been around a long time, almost four score, without the seven added. I had my first paying job 60 years ago. At that time, I met composers, lyricists, and playwrights with whom I would work for the body of my life. And the atmosphere in our society was so generous, so welcoming, that I also met and grew to know most of the great established writers, composers, and directors in the theater. They seemed curious about what I wanted to do with my life. And they asked questions, and they listened to my replies. I've always believed that they were so forthcoming, not only because manners in those days were held in high regard, because there were so many of them working consistently and simultaneously. The arts were flourishing. There was no TV then, and little until the 50s. We wrote letters then, long letters, and instead of channel surfing, we read voraciously. We were ambitious to create. Making money was not the object, it was ancillary. As the years go on, we got older, some of us got married and had children, and making money acquired a new urgency. But it never was, it never has become paramount. For being an artist, accepted by artists, perhaps appreciated for some impact on the quality of our life in our country, beyond our country, on our globe, was the goal. And honestly, that's how I feel. And I would give anything uh, for a, a more s substantial view of a return to those values.
Hal Prince, who died on July 31, 2019, less than a week before his friend, Toni Morrison. He was 91, she was 88. We hope their lives and their work and the talks you heard today leave you feeling inspired. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is funded generously by the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you, as always, for listening.